Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode number 152 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Did you enjoy your Memorial Day weekend? I sure did. And you guys, you and Nick did a great job last week on 151. I listened to it. Great job. Of course, uh, uh, Nick started talking about ESG at the beginning of the podcast. Just get on his soapbox, and I thought it was... Matt sitting next to me. I almost jumped out of my chair. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was good. Hopefully everybody else had a, a good Memorial Day weekend. I know we spent some time together outside, got to see your kiddos and everything. So it was nice to have a, a long weekend to unplug for a little bit. It's nice to see them, you know, outside enjoying, you know, the weather and, you know, they have my, my wife's skin, so they don't burn at all. Of course I burned <laughs> over the weekend. That's how you know I had a good weekend. Yes. Good. Well, good. As hard as we're working lately, it's nice to take that time once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. You got to take, everybody's got to take some time and just uh, un- unplug for a little bit, you know? Yeah. So it was nice. We were uh, blessed with some nice weather. We, so we were blessed be with nice weather, weren't we? So, yes. Uh, so before we begin, as always, I just want to take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on May 31st. So the uh, the monthly numbers are going to be for the full month of May. Got it. And then uh, year to date through May 31st. So S&P 500 indexed uh, finished up a whopping 0.01% for the month of May. That's the classic story of doesn't tell the whole story. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Everyone just thinks and they're like, oh, that oh, was a flat been, month. Nothing happened, right? Stocks didn't go anywhere. Yeah. Not anything exactly. but that. Uh, and, and down 14% on the year. The Dow uh, similarly was only up 0.04% for the month of May uh, and is still down 9.7% on the year. The NASDAQ Composite Index down 2.05% for May and down 22.78% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 Index up 0.19% for May and down 17.17% for the year. Vanguard International ETF, X United States, up uh, half a percent for the month and down 11.66% for the year. The three-month T-bill currently yielding 1.15%, the two-year Treasury yield uh, sitting at 2.65%, and the 10-year Treasury yield sitting at 2.91%. Um, so moving on to big headlines and current events from the week. Um, University of Michigan's U.S. Consumer Sentiment Index deteriorated further in May to a fresh decade low due to escalating concerns over inflation uh, and the dimmed outlook for the economy. Uh, Consumers are expecting prices to rise 5.3% over the next year, and they expect prices to climb at an annual rate of 3% over the next 5 to 10 years. Um, So, which really isn't that far off from the Fed's target of of 2%. So uh, any comments you want to add to that? I think that when I um, see consumer sentiment, of course, lately, I think the data is dramatically skewed by inflation. And in addition, I think those numbers will normalize over the next couple of years. 
But short term, with again, two thirds of our economy being consumer spending led, this is something I think investors need to be watching. Right. And I actually just saw before I came in here, it was just a Wall Street Journal um, alert that uh, OPEC reached a deal to release more oil. Um, so that'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the next month or so. Yeah, you know, thinking about oil, and I get this question a lot. I know you do too, Mark, probably behind the scenes when we're not together. People keep saying, you know, Matt, when do you think, in your best opinion, you know, oil, and I'm not an oil expert per se, but I would say, you know, the peak summer driving season is going to be middle of summer. And I just find it hard to believe they're going to be able to keep juicing these prices up past that point. Right. My opinion, we'll see if I'm right. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe next week we'll dig into more of that OPEC agreement because I just saw it running into uh, to record this morning. Uh, second piece of information was on home supply data. So this was from Redfin on May 26. They said that the supply of new homes for sale jumped 9% last week compared with the same period a year ago. Uh, and this was according to Realtor.com. Uh, that's the biggest annual gain the company has recorded since it began tracking the metric in 2017. Redfin also reports that new listings rose nearly twice as fast in the four weeks ended May 15th as they did during the same period a year ago. Um, and there was another quote from a realtor at Redfin by the name of Lindsay Katz. And she said, we used to get 10 to 15 offers on most houses. Now I'm seeing between two to six offers on a house, a good house. Um, and she's in L.A. So I think we are starting to see the housing market cool off a little bit. At least have some headwinds. Right, exactly. So and I think that's obviously a combination of higher mortgage rates um, increasing supply. So again, do I think the housing market's going to crash? Just my opinion. No, I don't. But I think we've been talking about this over the past couple of months is that we can see a slowdown in the rapid increase of prices that we experienced over the past two years, right? I would agree. And it was interesting. I know we had a gentleman on the podcast um, uh, last year, uh, Matt Edwards, He's a mortgage broker in town, and I spent some time with him last week uh, at his office. I had a visit, and um, he was kind of talking to some other realtors at this time in regards to everyone thinking if we have a recession, that means real estate automatically sells off, right? And he was providing them some data showing periods like the, the dot-com bubble of 2000 to 2002, and he had real estate price data during that time, and guess what did actually quite well? Real estate. Real estate. And, you know, so just not every recession looks like 07 and 08 and 09. And I just wanted to just put that little tidbit out there. Yeah. Because there's a chance we could see a recession later this year. Yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah. Uh, last thing uh, before we move on to tweets and research, um, PCE readings came in better than expected last week, Matt. So. Um, just for listeners, PCE stands for personal consumption expenditures. And this is a measure, um, or excuse me, it measures consumer spending for a certain period of time. So it reflects changes in the prices of goods and services purchased by consumers in the U.S. And this is actually the preferred measure of inflation by the Federal Reserve. So uh, another important measure that they use is something called core PCE. And core PCE just subtracts out food and energy prices just because they tend to be so volatile. Yes. Right? And I would say, and people have heard me say this in the podcast before, 
food inflation, the biggest component is diesel fuel into that. Right. You got to realize that. Right. You know, so if we have diesel fuel, let's say it corrects by a quarter, 25% over the next six months, which is not guaranteed, but I would argue is plausible. You could see food and prices come in. Right. But the Fed's going to have to continue to carry the water on this. Yeah, absolutely. So um, to get into the data, uh, PCE year over year uh, came in at 6.3% versus 6.6% in the prior month. Ooh, deceleration. Uh, the Exactly. We've been talking about that for a while. PCE month over month was 0.2% versus a prior month 0.9%, which was the lowest since November of 2020. And core PCE came in at 4.9% versus 5.2% the month before and 5.3% two months ago. So there's been two straight months of decline in core PCE. So which the is, tea leaves of potential peak inflation, potentially, yes. was a couple months ago. Yeah, absolutely. So again, as we've talked about several times before over the past couple of weeks, we don't know what the damage is going to be from China being shut down for so long. Absolutely. Uh, specifically Shanghai. But at least right now in the U.S., you are starting to see some positive numbers regarding inflation. Yeah. And I think what's interesting is, you know, you've seen it from the retailers over the past several weeks where inflation is causing a certain subsection of the consumer base to pull back on discretionary um, goods. And what they're having to do is lower those prices to move to, to move product. Right. And so that will also help these numbers to a certain extent. But really, at the end of the day, you're going to need to see energy really come in to make a bigger, bigger dent in these inflation figures. And I, don't, I, I think that you might not see peak energy until this summer. Yeah. Because yeah. I think I don't care what happens. People are, have had cabin fever for two years. If they have a trip planned this summer... They're going to do They're it. going. They're yeah, going. Right. Hell or high water. Yep. When's the last time you heard that term? It's been a while. Now I'm bringing it it's back. It's been a while. I'm yeah. bringing it back. Well, yeah. I mean, we were just, we were driving to an appointment yesterday and I saw um, gas in Dayton, Ohio is $4.80. Yeah. So uh, people don't like that. <laughs> people don't like that. No. So mm -mm. Um, moving on to tweets, articles, and research from this week. Uh, first thing I had was a quote from Seth Klarman. And Seth said, in investing, it is never wrong to change your mind. It is only wrong to change your mind and do nothing about it. I like that. So um, I just thought it fit well with the environment that we're in because, you know, for the past several years, we have been in an environment where buy and hold was fine, regardless of what was going on. And I think we're just more in a... Dips were buying opportunities. Correct. Everybody was so trained on buying the dip and it's not working so far yet right now. And what I want to get the point across here is, you know, it's okay to still like a lot of these big tech companies, for example, that have sold off. But I think it's also okay to realize there's some other areas of the market that are doing better, and it's okay to reallocate to that. So I think this is the type of environment that you know, tactical investing can actually work to help soften the blow of the drawdown in the portfolio. You know, our long-term investment game plan has not changed, but no. this 
environment that we're in right now, in my opinion, calls for more tactical asset management than just we're going to buy and hold for the next five years. Well articulated. Only thing I'd add to it is, you know, the reason I think we feel this way is that some of the issues we're seeing in the market are structural, meaning they're going to take time to normalize and let's just call it heal, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, during that type of process, you know, when you got the Fed carrying the water and just 50 basis point raise, 50 basis point raise because supply chains aren't getting better, there's going to be collateral damage with that. Yeah, absolutely. So, and again, I think that this economy um, is going to be run by technology and that's not going to change or slow down over the next several decades. So long term, you know, I'm 100 percent. Oh, yeah, uh, I'm with you. Very bullish. I mean, on, look at the balance sheets. I mean, we, we talked about this uh, many times in the podcast. It's like anytime I hear someone sit there and say that, you know, X, Y, Z stock just because it sold off 70 percent from peak to bottom from 07 to 09 means it's going to happen again. That, that that's comparing apples to oranges. That's comparing someone's knowledge at whatever point of the career, whatever industry they're in at age 55 to where they were at age 35. Mm -hmm. It's not comparable. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, start, I almost started to rant there, Jenna. I was close. <laughs> I'm going to cut you off before we go down that road. Uh, next was a tweet from David Cox on May 17th. And I might have already used this already, or maybe you used it, but I, I think just it's a good reminder. Put it in there again, but uh, institutional cash levels have uh, risen to the highest level since 9/11. So it's a chart, uh, excuse me, a chart from uh, B of A Global Fund Managers Survey um, that they you know throw this survey out there and say, hey, what are your what are, what is your fund's cash level? Uh, and again, it's the highest since it's been since since 9/11. So people haven't been this conservative or this bearish in a very long time now this is a two things come to mind one a lot of dry powder on the sidelines we are still going to experience times of bear market rallies that are going to be quick and fierce and for some investors it could signal coast is clear look at the way these stocks are moving that could be true and it could not be true right and i will say that um, when the market does bottom, which in my personal and professional opinion will be sometime later this year, the preceding couple of years with as conservatively positioned people will be at that point, we should be in a, in a good environment after, after we bottom. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. And it, you know, it just goes back to the point is, you know, we're not the, the advisors that think, you know, we should be hitting the panic button and going 100% to cash because like we experienced in March of 2020, that thing snapped back pretty quickly. Absolutely. Um, and again, is it going to play out like that? I don't know. I would say probably not. It could. It could be a V-shaped recovery. It could be we bottom and chop sideways for a while um, before we move higher. So we just have to be open to all of those possibilities and not just guess and allocate according to that. It's just like, let's read what the market is telling us and we'll allocate appropriately just because it's not going to play out like other recoveries had. Word of the day, tactical. Tactical. Uh, last thing I had was a piece from a Bespoke uh, Investment Group on May 3rd. And the, the title of this short, short article was uh, Bond Market Massively Oversold. Massively. 
massively. It takes a lot for Bespoke to use words like that. Yeah, and it's I kind of agree with them here. So I'll get into that here in a second. So they say the sell-off in bond prices over the last six months has been extreme to say the least. There are a number of ways we could highlight the carnage for bond investors, but one way is to look at how far bond indices are trading below their 200-day moving averages. As shown below, the Bloomberg U.S. Aggregate Bond Market Total Return Index is currently 8.5% below its 200-day moving average. Going back to 1988, when daily price data began, the 200-day moving average spread is currently two times more negative than any prior extreme oversold reading. So... Again, this has been a brutal start to the year for bonds. Brutal is an under understatement. Right. And again, it could get worse or it could get a lot better just because it's, you know, two times more oversold than what the average is doesn't mean it can't keep going lower. But mm-hmm. I just don't want I want I wanted to include this piece because I don't want people to think that bonds are dead and they're never going to work again. Yes, and I have a piece on on, on my own uh, angle with this topic here in a little bit. Okay. So I'm going to save my reply if that's re- out of respect. That's fine. Okay. I'll let you just jump right into it then. Okay. So um, I'm just going to cover that one first. Okay. Just so we have um, continuity with the conversation. So this piece is also from Bespoke Investment <laughs> Group, but the date on this one is is May 25th. And a reminder for maybe some of our newer viewers and listeners. There are certain uh, research that uh, we subscribe to uh, as our firm, and Bespoke is a good aggregator of what I would call raw research. Mm-hmm. A lot less opinion and a lot of raw historical or current data. Make sense? Yeah. All right. So they had this piece, and I'm going to read it out loud first. Quote, fixed income ETFs have started to disconnect from equities over the last several days. Investors starting to worry more about the health of the economy than inflation, question mark. So the chart that Jenna is gonna post on our show notes and that she will show now live on our YouTube uh, viewers, Mark, is a chart of some of the most uh, popular or larger fixed income exchange traded funds. And what this shows from May 25th is their year-to-date returns at that time. And then the next column shows their five-day returns. And there's some brutal year-to-date numbers on these bonds. And it's interesting to kind of see those those five-day movements up until this point. Why did I pick this piece to discuss? I think the market is starting to realize that there is more of a chance of a recession than it's been actually pricing in. In that if you're the Federal Reserve, and because the supply chains are so messed up, that they are the only ones who can take care of bringing inflation down, if we're gonna go into a recession, there's only so far they can raise, or they're just gonna make the recession worse. Mm -hmm. And the bond market is telling you, you were talking about following the data, the bond market is starting to tell you that the chances of a recession are rising. Yeah. That's why I wanted to bring this up. Yeah. And over the short term, we even talked about this before you even brought this this piece up. But, you know, 
early last week, it was interesting to see, or the week before as well, that bond prices were actually starting to hang in there when equity markets were were selling off. And even the, the high yield corporate bonds, high yield which corporate tend to be more correlated well. to equities. Right. You pointed that out. So I think that's, you know, it's, it's a step, in my opinion, it's a step in the right direction of, um, you know, how markets Investments function. Investments should be historically. Right. Yeah. So I think it's a step in the right direction. But again, I, I agree. I think, you know, the bond market is now pricing in a higher probability of a recession uh, sooner rather than later. And, you know, people are going to move their, their money into a lot of these bond funds. So, uh, again, just something to me that I had been waiting for because that just makes sense. Well, people have been saying for the last roughly five, six months, the 60-40 allocation, which we talked about extensively on the podcast, 60% equities, 40% bonds and cash, is dead. And all of a sudden, you're starting to see those historical return attributes starting to normalize a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And again, if I think if you're someone that has had a 60-40 portfolio for you know, a long period of time, a decade, two decades, even if it's, you know, five to eight years, I don't want people to be discouraged just because of the media saying that the 60-40 portfolio is dead. I think that if, if it has worked for you over the long term and you're okay with the risk management, stick to your game plan and don't let anybody else tell you that, you know, your investment strategy needs to change. Play the averages. Don't play the short-term trends. Absolutely. All right. Next piece I have, uh, I'm going to go back to my first piece, is insider buying is picking up. Okay. So this is a piece from Zero Hedge on May 26th. It is in regards to insider buying. And this data, again, uh, is from Zero Hedge. Can you just briefly explain what's insider buying for people that yes. might not understand So that? there are certain data points that are um, uh, very real and something that we can judge. And one of those things is when you're an insider, you have to be reporting to the markets when you are buying and selling a stock. It has to be reported. So an, an insider is someone that has non-public information about a company. Typically, it's people that work for a publicly traded company. Typically, correct? the C-suite. Yeah. Okay. Or directors on the board. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they have a purview of information that's not public. And usually, that stuff becomes public at their next earnings report every quarter. Okay, and so the theory Wall Street has historically had is that when an insider buys, they are using their own personal money to put to work in the company stock that they work for or they're associated with being a director on the board. And that usually this is a sign of confidence that the stock is at a good entry level. Mm -hmm. Now, again, what I'm saying there is my editorial opinion as to how this is interpreted by Wall Street, okay? Now, what we are seeing on this chart going back to 2015, which Jenna will now put up on our uh, YouTube uh, for people watching live or in our show notes, is that we are, we're spiking on this. And you'll notice that back through the COVID sell-off of February and March of 2020, you saw a dramatic spike in insider buying during that time. And you're seeing what I would deem to be a sizable increase in insider buying. Now, what this chart doesn't do 
is segregate sectors. It's not going to show you, you know, what tech is or what, you know, consumer discretionary and materials or energy. It's just the S&P 500 as a whole. But still, this actually goes in the positive point because people aren't going to put their own personal money to work if they feel their company stock is not attractive. Yeah. And I think the other thing to note here is that, you know, insiders sell sell their company's stock for a variety of different reasons. It's not necessarily just because they think the outlook for their company isn't good, but it could be for other personal matters, right? That's right. But on the flip side of that, when you buy a stock, you buy it for one reason and one reason only. You think it's going higher over time. Exactly. So that's it's a step in the right direction. Again, we're starting to see some signs of you know things normalizing a bit but i i truly don't think we're completely out of the woods just yet but um it's good to see this type of stuff start to happen it's a tea leave and one i'm going to continue to watch yeah i'll put it that way okay so the next piece i have and the last piece i have this week for viewers is a tweet by a cnbc news anchor carl cantania and he posted this on Twitter on May 24th. They, by the way, CNBC must be hurting for, for money right now because every day for the past two weeks, yeah. I've gotten an email asking me to subscribe to CNBC Pro. Yes. Man, it's annoying. I think uh, my personal opinion is that you know they were hitting the fear so hard the first four or five months out of the year that I think a lot of investors have become desensitized. Mm -hmm. You can only have the red glowing font so much every day for you're like, oh, it's red and it's glowing again. Right. Yeah. Starts to be normal. Yeah. I just wanted to throw that out there. But yep. yeah, I'm, I got to unsubscribe from those emails. You watch back end of this. It'll be the green flowing font later this year of greed back into play. Can't wait to see that. All right. So this tweet from Carl Cantania. He is quoting and showing a chart from a research firm, Yardindi, and I probably murdered the pronunciation of this research firm. I think he's a, I think he's a person. I think his name's Ed Yardini. Yardini? Yardini? Yeah. And so um, I, I've seen this research firm in different um, um, publications in the past. Okay. And so um, they're definitely known for their um, earnings estimates on the S&P, giving a corresponding price to earnings ratio. And I want to be careful. I don't get too deep in the weeds. And he also has their year end target for where they think the S&P is at, which mm. I know you're not like. a fan. Don't like that. So what's interesting with this chart, Mr. McEvely, is going back to 2009 you can reference their track record of what their year-end target was, which okay. I found interesting. Okay. Okay. So here was my notes that I pre-planned that I wanted to discuss. Because a lot of these things I bring up to our viewers and listeners, I'm, you know, I have a chart and I have something I want to share. This, my, my thoughts are a little more formal. Okay. Because I knew for you specifically that uh, you'd find this good. So I found this chart interesting. For the record, here's my opinion. I can get on board with the 2023 figures for the most part, which is their earnings estimates for the S&P 500. My two cents is that things could still get worse before they get better here for the S&P 500 index. The index, because they're saying the index, uh, the low for the year would be 3825. 
I think the index could definitely trade under that. And you can't look at things like this and assume that that's the worst that it can get. So if you see a publication on CNBC, Bloomberg, or, or any sort of publication that says, you know, we think the market bottom is XYZ, that's not biblical. That's not written in stone. That's an opinion, mm -hmm. right? So looking at other years going back to 2009, there have been years where the index never got close to their year-end goal on the chart 2010, 2011, 2012, 2018. Again, just another data point, okay? What I like, though, is their thoughts on the overall S&P 500 index's earnings. That is not a bad-looking forward price-to-earnings ratio, which they're quoting to be between 15 to 17 times, okay? Now, could S&P 500 earnings continue to get cut as the year goes on? Yes. That is what you need to watch out for. Q2 earnings season in late July, beginning of August, is going to be very interesting, okay? So again, why did I pick this? I just want to be careful that when people see these um, these forecasts of, you know, XYZ stocks going to be at XYZ price in the next 12 months, or XYZ index is going to be at this. That's a data point. They have their own models. That's an opinion. And I want to be careful that people don't take that as biblical. And I like the data points of looking at overall earnings. And again, I don't think you're going to see the deterioration of earnings like you saw in 07 and 08 and 09. You might see a decrease, but not to the magnitude you saw back then. Right. That's what I want to highlight with this. So is this chart showing that they think the low is going to be yes. 38.25? Yes. So we actually went below that already. We, are, we went down to 3,800 on the S&P intraday, and they think it's going to end the year at 4,335? That yes, that's I'm how you interpret that this chart. So and then next year, they think the trading range will be 4,400 to 4,950. Okay, 4,335. So, so their upper end is only like 6% away from the S&P 500, and we already intraday went down to about 3,815 in the S&P 500. So that's, hmm, that's just interesting. Yep. Okay. Again, I like the earnings aspect of this better looking at you know, a forward-looking price-to-earnings ratio, which you and I are not as hot on, mm -hmm. right? But there is a lot of people who are, and that's not a bad range for valuations. Yeah. In general, looking out several years. Well, yeah, it brings them down more to the historical average, I would Absolutely. say. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. All right, that's what I have uh, for this week. All right. Well, we'll transition now and uh, we'll let you get on with your day and I'll bring in Taylor for our financial planning topic of the week. All right, buddy. I'll be back next week. See you back here. Well, welcome back, Taylor, to uh, another podcast episode for the financial planning topic of the week. So uh, for new listeners, uh, Taylor Ledbetter is uh, one of our advisors uh, heavily on the planning side of the business here. So uh, there's been a lot of demand for Taylor to come back and talk about some financial planning topics that she thinks is pertinent to our clients and all of our listeners. So I'll let you take it away, Taylor. Yeah, so... Today, I'm going to be referencing an article, and it's called Why a Pension Lump Sum Option is Better Than an Annuity Payment, and it's by Brian Scrobandra, if I said <laughs> that right. Pronounce that correctly. <laughs> 
So basically this article just talks about why a lump sum from a pension may be more favorable. And while that may be true in some circumstances, I don't think that's true for everybody because at the end of the day, it really just comes down to which option provides the greatest amount of income. Right. So the article starts off about talking about just problems with pensions in general. So it states that today we see fewer pensions compared to 20 years ago. The reason for this downward trend is that pensions are facing systematic problems, which is why we see private sector companies replacing these defined benefit plans with defined contribution plans such as 401ks. Today, employees retire much sooner and live much longer, and this translates to significantly higher pension costs that can be unsustainable. And I think it's important to mention that a defined benefit plan, the employers have mandatory funding, whereas with a 401k, the funding has more responsibility on the employees, which is why I think they've become more popular. Right. According to a 2017 article from Daily News, nearly 1 million working and retired Americans are currently covered by pension plans that are in imminent danger of insolvency. So my question to you would be, what happens if a pension is unable to pay the promised benefits? Yeah, so um, a lot of things, you know, we've experienced it with some of our clients, Taylor, and I think you know this, is that people have gotten their uh, pension payments cut before, and sometimes as much as 50%, just because they can't fund their liabilities. And I think you're going to continue to see this. And I think one of the uh, intriguing parts for people about pensions is they're like, hey, for the rest of my life, I'm going to get X amount per month. But sometimes that's not necessarily the case. You know, if the company goes belly up or if they they literally cannot meet their obligations, then you're kind of SOL at that point. Mm -hmm. And that's why I just for someone that um, has a family or has people that they want to pass money on to the next generation, mm -hmm. I think a lot of the times the lump sum option is a lot more beneficial for them because they can take that money, put it in an IRA in their name and continue to invest it and grow that for as long as they live. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot easier to pass to the next generation. And what you see with a lot of these uh, older pensions is that you can take a uh, joint and survivor option, which if you pass away, the money gets cut in half and then goes to your spouse. But once your spouse passes away, no more money is paid out. So there's no more money paid out to your kids, your grandkids, or anything like that. So that's my biggest problem is the transferability of pensions is very, very difficult. Um, and the lump sum option is very superior if that's important to you. But like you said earlier, that's not for everybody. If someone is single and they don't have a lot of family, then sometimes the pension option makes the most sense because they're like, well, when I pass away, I don't really have anyone else that I want to leave money to. So that might make sense for them. But, um, you know, I think this is going to become more and more in the spotlight here because, 
these companies have done such a bad job of investing this pension money for their employees that it's going to blow up in their face. And we've already started to see that uh, over the past several years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like I said earlier, you definitely see more of the defined contribution plans now. And I think the only time to add on to what you said, a pension may make sense is if that's their only source of income in retirement. Right. You know, that lump sum distribution is eventually going to grow into much more than what your pension amount would be. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I just think that for a long time, people never could believe that, you know, a company wasn't going to be able to pay their their pension obligations. But we're in that environment right now where it's becoming more and more common. Um, you know, and I think advisors sometimes get a bad rap for recommending uh, lump sum rollovers from the pension. And for people that aren't really familiar with that terminology, Taylor, all that means is instead of taking your monthly annuity payments from your pension, a lot of times companies will offer you the ability to take a lump sum of the, the pension, put it into an IRA, and then you invest it from there for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what I'm talking about when I say, you know, lump sum rollover. But, you know, um, I just think that uh, you have more control over the money when you're managing it yourself in your IRA or you hire an advisor to do. But a lot of people who are for annuities and pensions will say, well, the advisor is just being greedy because they want to get paid on those assets mm -hmm. that they're managing for you. And to a certain extent, I could see how, how that's a popular opinion. Um, but again, it's just for me, the big sticking point is, is passing that money on to the next generation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and actually the main point of this article was regarding lump sums, it said one of the biggest advantages is you have control over all of your assets. Yeah. Um, you know, that money can keep growing. You can invest it however you want to. You're not stuck with one defined benefit for the rest of your life. Yeah. And you're not beholden to your former employer, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you're at risk of getting that pension, you know, chopped in half. Whereas if that money is in your IRA and it's being invested and the company goes belly up, they have no rights on that money. That is your money in your account, and they can't touch that. Mm -hmm. But if they're the ones providing the monthly income, there's risk there. Mm -hmm. so. No, I, I agree with everything that you just stated. Um, like I said, the article kind of went on and talked about how the lump sum just gives you more control over your assets. Um, also talked about the single life annuity versus mm -hmm. the joint and survivor annuity. The article said it can be tempting to take the joint and survivor so that your spouse gets benefits. Mm -hmm. um, but obviously, you get a lower amount every single month. Right, exactly. And, you know, I think that's a good point to bring up is that, you know, if you take um, your pension and you do the single life annuity is what they call it at most companies, you get that money for the rest of your life. But when you pass away, your spouse gets nothing. Right. And that's going to be a larger monthly payment that if you will, then if you elect the joint uh, survivor option and it's typically 50 or 75 percent that when you pass away, your spouse gets 50 percent of whatever you're getting at that time. Mm -hmm. And again, just goes back to our, our comment that we've said a million times already that, um, you know, it, it's hard to pass that money on. And, and the annuity company or the company just keeps the rest of it and you can't pass it to to more people if you want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And like I said, there's advantages and disadvantages to both, but there's so many factors that play into it, like social security, mm -hmm. life insurance, um, 
how much is in your investment account. So I don't think one option, you know, is not a one size for everybody. Right. It just depends on the situation. And like virtually like almost everything else in our industry, Taylor, there's never a one size fit all for everybody. You know, Um, that's the question that that I get a lot of the times. And, you know, the answer I always have for a lot of questions that I get is, well, it depends. And everyone's situation is different. And I think that's why, you know, working with an advisor or a professional in that industry can help you weigh the pros and cons and make the best decision for you and your family. Um, So that's another reason that I think each of these situations should be talked about and weigh the pros and cons of the lump sum or the annuity payment. And then, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the client needs to make that decision for themselves. But what we can do as professionals is is just give them all of the information they need and arm them to make that informed decision for themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, there are obviously some people who don't have access to an advisor, so they may just be getting one side of the story about why a pension is a better option um, than a lump sum. Right. So you have a lot of people out there who you know, don't know any of this. Right, exactly. So, yeah, and again, uh, we harp on this all the time. I think, you know, our industry can do a better job about educating people on this type of stuff. So Mm -hmm. hopefully we can continue to move that forward over the next couple of years. But um, Jenna's going to include this link in the show notes for this article, Taylor. Mm -hmm. So if people want to read more in depth on that, they can check it out. Uh, in our show notes on Facebook and LinkedIn at Jessup Wealth Management and on Twitter at Jessup Wealth. So thanks, Taylor, for providing us with another good financial planning topic of the week. Yeah, thank you. All right, everybody, we will see you back here next week for episode number 153. We hope you all have a safe and fun weekend. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.